Good evening and welcome to the Legal Eagle Review, an informative and thought-provoking weekly show covering legal issues affecting everyday people. We know that there are many things you could be doing with your time, and we appreciate your decision to share this time with us. I'm Irving Joyner. And I'm April Dawson. We're law professors at North Carolina Central University School of Law, and we're your co-hosts. The Legal Eagle Review is sponsored by the NCCU School of Law and the Virtual Justice Project. We thank you for joining us this evening. In just about everything that we do in life, contracts are a central part of it. Whether we are talking about buying and selling or shopping, as you know it, using your cell phones and computers, entertaining, engaging in domestic partnerships, working on our jobs, interacting with public and private entities, renting and purchasing homes, and other interactions that we are engaged in, the contracting process is involved. We do not think about these activities being contractual based because they are typically viewed as normal day-to-day activities. It is not until problems develop that we realize that contractual obligations and remedies are involved. So this is a good time for us to discuss the contracting process. On this evening's show, we are gonna talk with a contract scholar and expert who can assist us in understanding this process. We welcome for this discussion, Professor Kia Vernon, who teaches contracts at the North Carolina Central University School of Law. Professor Vernon, welcome to the Legal Legal Review. Thank you so much, Professor Joyner and Professor Dawson. It is an absolute pleasure to be here with you this evening. Okay. Now, at at the outset of of this discussion, I must uh, inform our audience that Professor Vernon is a double eagle, having graduated from the undergraduate program and then from the uh, NCCU School of Law. Now she is back to teach at the law school, but Professor Vernon, just to bring people up to date, can you give them a little background uh, on you and what you've done other than go to school and teach? (laughs) Well, I I appreciate that introduction. I am a proud legal eagle and a proud double eagle. I graduated from North Carolina Central University, uh, let's just say a long time ago. And I graduated from North Carolina Central University School of Law back in 2000. So I am am very well acquainted with North Carolina Central University and it is near and dear to my heart. In between graduating from North Carolina Central and then coming back to attend its prestigious law school, I taught high school Spanish for four years. So in addition to teaching law school, I've also taught um, in the secondary school level And after completing four years as a North Carolina teaching fellow, I returned to my alma mater to attend its law school. After graduating from law school, I practiced in private practice for about 10 years until I was offered the opportunity to come back to the place that I I love and that I know as home, North Carolina Central University, and um, fell in love with the not just the the process of teaching, but teaching law 
And so I've been fortunate to be able to work at the law school since 2007. And I started off as an adjunct professor and then went to a tenure tracked position back in 2009 and I've been teaching here ever since. So, so it's, it's a pleasure to know that we uh, help you to escape from the zone of danger in, uh, <laughs> in the school system. So uh, it's good having you uh, here. But can you kind of talk about how you, uh, because you, you, you had several years of, uh, of practice as a, uh, as a lawyer, but how did you get involved in this uh, uh, research and uh, activities in the contractual area of law? Well, I'm glad you asked that question. And, and, and what most people probably, probably don't realize is that you know, everything that we do today surrounds contract law. And so it's really important for people to understand exactly what a contract is and what their responsibilities are and what their, ob their obligations and you know, just what a contract is and, and what to do when you get in. And also want to talk about some myths associated with contracts. But really, um, although I practiced in a lot of different areas, mainly in family law and then in real property law, you know, everything that you do, as I tell my students, involves contract law. So it's been a pleasure for me to um, kind of teach that now and to emphasize the importance of contracts to my students so that they understand not only what contracts is, but what they um, will encounter when they enter into the profession and, and some of the real life issues that deal with contract law. Okay, well, let's, let's get right on into it then. And uh, why don't you uh, explain to our audience just what a contract is? Well, I'll, I'll start off in basic terms. What a contract is, is a legally enforceable agreement. We like to refer to a contract as a bargain for exchange. And essentially what that means is that we have parties who manifest, who come together to be bound to an agreement. And that agreement is supported by consideration. So what we, what we mean by consideration, and it's, ex, it's in exchange for something, either in exchange for a service or goods or something else. Um, but it's, it's basically in simple terms that parties come together to do a deal. And you know, um, Professor Vernon, when people hear a contract, um, legally enforceable agreement, there's the need for consideration, there are some folks that might think that unless there's a document in front of you or some formal engagement that there's not a contract. So can you talk about um, the different types of contracts, contract, contractual relationships that just, you know, everyday people will experience, even if it doesn't seem like it's a situation where there is a formal contract. Well, thank you very much, Professor Dawson. You are absolutely right. Most people think that a contract has to be a formal agreement. It does not. In fact, most of us are entering several contracts a day and don't even know it. If, for example, you try to access a website, one of the things that you'll see now is a pop-up appears and you have to agree that by using the website that you agree to the use of cookies, 
right? Which allow the provider to track and store information related to your use. That's a contract, that's an agreement. You are agreeing by either clicking or continuing to use the website, you are agreeing to be bound to your, those terms. And so we are entering into agreements every day and sometimes multiple times a day. If you use your cell phone, if you have a smartphone, you have to enter into an agreement with the provider in order for them to provide you that service. Um, even with the actual phone itself, you have to enter into an agreement to have access to the software. So we are entering into multiple transactions every day that involve contracts, that are contracts, that are legally binding agreements. Now, you, you mentioned that a, a, a written document is not necessary to form uh, a contract, but aren't there some situations where a uh, written document must be present? You're absolutely correct, Professor Joyner. So one of the common myths regarding contracts is that a contract has to be in writing to be enforceable. Most contracts do not have to be in writing. There are some statutes, however, that provide that certain contracts must be in writing to prevent fraud. But even then, a formal writing or document that, that we know as to be a contract where it has a recital and this contract is entered into this, this you know, 18th day of, of whatever month on, um, of this year, all of that doesn't have to be included. So although the, there are some contracts that must be in writing, the writing doesn't even have to be a formal contract that both parties sign. So um, with that being said, although the contracts don't have to be write in writing and don't have to be in a formal writing, I always do recommend that people for their protection put their agreements into writing. As I tell my students, this alleviates any understanding, misunderstandings or issues later on. And I, I often like to tell my students something that they hopefully will remember. In God we trust and all else we get it in writing. So even though documents don't have to be in writing to be enforced, we um, strongly recommend that people get their agreements in writing. Now, the, we, we, we've often heard, at least in, in the legal realm, uh, this notion of uh, offer, acceptance, uh, consideration, uh, mutual uh, consent and understanding. Uh, can you explain just how those elements fit into the uh, contracting uh, uh, process and really where whether all of those things are really uh, in place when you enter into a contract? Well, an offer consists of, or a contract consists of an offer and an acceptance plus the consideration, as you just mentioned. An offer is a party manifesting an intent to enter into an agreement. And so that's um, generally what we'll see in terms of how we the process begins. Someone says, I want to either buy something or I want to sell something. Uh, the response to that is considered to be the acceptance. So an acceptance is a party that um, manifests an intent to enter into that agreement, to say yes to that offer. So if a person is selling something and the person says, I will buy it, then that is the acceptance. 
the consideration comes in just making sure that 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 agreement is supported by by something of value. So it doesn't necessarily have to be money, but that there is a reason that the parties have entered into the transaction. Now, um, as we talked before, there are a lot of different transactions that we are entering into every single day that we don't even realize are contracts. So the offer is when information, when we are trying to access information and that information is presented to us, we are accepting that information and accepting the terms of that information um, in many forms. Again, we can acknowledge our acceptance by just you know, clicking on something or saying, I agree, or I will. Um, but oftentimes we can accept merely by using whatever the product is or the information is that's being provided. So really the, the process is taking place, whether we know what, what the individual terms are or the legal terms are, we're, we're still involved in that offer acceptance and consideration process. So when we talk about consideration, again, um, what we're really looking for is what the parties are considering in entering into the agreement. So what's the reason that they are entering into the agreement? So what the courts want to do is to make sure that gratuitous promises um, are, are just that. So they are, if you say, I will give you $500 and that's a gift, if something happens and later on someone comes back and says, oh, well, you didn't give me that $500, I'm gonna sue you. Um, if it's not in exchange for something, if it's merely a gift, then it's not um, an enforceable, it's an agreement, but it's not legally enforceable by um, to be recognized by a court. Well, let, let's see if we can break it down to one of the everyday interactions that, uh, that people have. And let's use the example of uh, going to uh, Food Lion uh, to uh, purchase uh, a 40 or some vegetables or some uh, other uh, food stuff uh, that's uh, there. Uh, can you explain how that uh, contracting process uh, works? Well, when you know we access either goods, what we're doing is we're entering into a contractual relationship with the people that are providing that good. So if it's for you know whatever for me, or if you're going into a store and you're purchasing um, any you know bread, essential items, whatever items that you're going to purchase, you're entering into a deal with the person that is offering that product. Um, and then that deal is subject to the terms. So if you go in the store, oftentimes what you'll see is uh, terms that are either written on the back of um, your receipt, or they could be um, displayed in front or in back of the cash register. Everything that we, that we do as part of that agreement is subject to the terms and conditions of that, that deal, that, that um, offer by that company. So we are accepting it according to their their terms. And, you know, and as you were talking, thinking of these real world kind of uh, situations, and you were talking about sometimes we accept an offer just by usage. And I was thinking about apps on phones. And so many people get these free apps. Um, and they think they're just free. But you are actually entering into you're accepting, 
you know, an offer oftentimes for the application to uh, get your data. Um, it, 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 is that an, and an, an in that situation, the consideration would be what? Well, first of all, the first question is, is that an accurate description of what happens when people get a free app and the application is actually kind of mining the data? And in that situation, what's the consideration? You're absolutely right. So that is a perfect example of one of those everyday transactions that we enter into. A number of us have smartphones and within those smartphones, we have access to a number of different apps. Uh, one of the things that we, in, in downloading that app and in accepting the terms, we're accepting blindly for the most part because most people don't read the terms of the service and the terms of um, their acceptance, but we are accepting not only the product itself, but everything that comes with it. So um, what we'll do is we'll click, click I accept or I agree and not even read the terms. Now, what I tell my students, you know, ignorance of the law is no excuse. Likewise, ignorance of what you don't read is no excuse. And so if there is information in there, you might not be able to change it, but I strongly encourage people to know what they're um, committing to, what they're agreeing to, because they are um, absent any other legal reason um, that it should not be enforced. They are agreeing to those terms. So um, even though they don't know what those terms are, and in your case, you have a, perfectly, um, a perfect example of them agreeing to their data being used, being accessed and being used and how they use it is pursuant to their terms. And so oftentimes we enter into these types of transactions and don't know the information that they're collecting. Sometimes they tell us, sometimes they don't. But that is, is um, one of the situations that we need to be aware of and to be aware that whatever is free, just because it's free, and you know, a really good question you asked is, well, what's the consideration for that if we're getting it for free? Well, we're not paying, but we're using the service. We're using the service and having access to the service. And even though they're not charging, both parties are getting something out of the deal. Um, they are getting, um, you know, even though it may not seem like they're getting any monetary value from that, they are either by the users or by selling your information. So even though it may be a free app, there still is consideration. I am being allowed to use that in exchange for you being um, able to access and then to, to then either sell or even share that access with other companies or other individuals. The, uh, this is the Legal Eagle uh, review. And we're talking about the uh, contracting uh, process and one that uh, that we all are engaged in on a regular basis and don't know it. Uh, we're speaking with Professor uh, Kia Vernon, who teaches contracts at the uh, North Carolina Central University uh, School of Law. Uh, we're gonna take a break and uh, want you to uh, stay with us and we will uh, be uh, right back to continue this, uh, this dialogue. I'm Nastasia Harris, a second-year law student at North Carolina Central University School of Law, and this is your Virtual Justice Spotlight. A contract is a legally enforceable agreement between two or more parties. Generally speaking, a legally binding contract may be oral or written. 
However, there are circumstances in which an oral contract is deemed unenforceable unless there is a writing and that writing is signed. This legal concept is known as the statute of frauds. Every state has its own statute of frauds, although it serves the same purpose. A statute of frauds serves to act as an assurance for the parties and protection against fraudulent behavior. Under the statute of frauds, a writing does not need to be formally written. Any writing is sufficient to meet the requirements under the statute of frauds, so long as the writing adequately shows a mutual agreement between the parties. Additionally, it is not necessary for both parties to sign the contract. The contract need only be signed by the party against whom the agreement is enforced. Lastly, the statute of frauds only applies to particular contracts. These contracts include a sale of an interest of land, contracts that cannot be performed within one year, contracts in which someone assumes responsibility for the debt of another, contracts involving marriage, contracts for the sale of goods worth more than $500, and certain contracts by executors and administrators of an estate. Virtual justice at the NCCU School of Law is the intersection of technology and the legal clinical program. I'm Nastasha Harris. Thanks for listening. Okay, we're back on the uh, Legal Legal Review. Thank you so very much for uh, staying with us as we continue this discussion about uh, contracts. And uh, it is a kind of uh, a secret life uh, that we are engaged in where we are doing things and don't even know what we're doing or the implications of, uh, of what we do. And uh, contracts is uh, uh, a, a critical ingredient of everything that we do and it impacts all of us in so many different ways. And joining us to discuss that uh, is uh, Professor Kia Vernon, who teaches contracts at North Carolina Central University uh, School of Law. And she has had a long experience in dealing with uh, these issues. We, 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 we concluded the uh, first segment uh, talking about the uh, cell phones and uh, uh, internet and computer uh, connections that, uh, that we have. But another example uh, that, uh, that people don't think about when they enter into the, that they're entering into a contract uh, process is uh, rental agreements, uh, where uh, tenants uh, seek to uh, obtain uh, housing uh, and they are presented with this long document, uh, multi pages, uh, with a lot of terms, and then without uh, reading, uh, they then sign it because they want to get the uh, the apartment. Uh, can you talk about uh, the perils of uh, of entering into these uh, contracts without knowing what it is that you are agreeing to? That's a very good example, Professor Joyner. One of the um, issues that a number of people face is with these types of agreements that they enter into, be it a landlord-tenant agreement um, uh, or, or a purchase of a property, but there are a lot of agreements that we're entering into where we don't really have an ability to be able to dictate what that agreement says. So we'd like to uh, refer to those as contracts of adhesion. So it's kind of a take it or leave it proposition 
where you have a number of terms that are presented and that your really only option at that time is to sign it or not sign it, but not signing it. A lot of these agreements are standard agreements or what people like to call as standard agreements. But um, really you just have an option of signing if you want the apartment, but if you don't, you just, or don't sign, you won't get it, right? Um, and so we have a number of people who have entered into transactions and really just aren't aware of what they are signing or the ramifications of, of what they have entered into, what they have agreed to. So one of the things that I strongly recommend for everyone is to understand what you are signing and um, what those terms are. So there, even if there is an agreement, if you want to, um, for in this example, if you want to rent an apartment, understand what your duties and responsibilities are. So oftentimes there are terms that are within that agreement um, which require you to act and your failure to act means that you are signing up for another contract um, under those same terms. And so one of the provisions that I talk to my students about is um, in a lot of contracts these days, they're inserting provisions that even though it's a one-year contract, it requires for you to give notice 60 days before the end of that contract of your intent to leave. And if you don't, it will automatically renew for another year. And so what people really want to do is, again, you may not be able to change any of, of the terms, but you do want to be aware of what those terms are, not after you sign, but before you sign. So while you know, this rental agency may have um, this contract, you know, some of them have different contracts. And so if you encounter something that um, you don't wanna agree to, then I would suggest that people uh, not sign and look at other or other either agencies or agreements or different companies or try to then negotiate a different term. What about if someone is reading a contract and there's something within the terms of the contract that they disagree with? I've uh, done this on occasion. Um, I don't know how uh, <laughs> binding it was, but, you know, kind of marking out and then initialing. Um, what, what are your thoughts about people doing that? And, and is, is that legally binding? Are we able to modify the contract if we uh, make it known on the contract that we're not agreeing to this particular terms? When is it appropriate to do that? And when are we, when is it not? Very good question. So oftentimes people think that if I just cross this provision out and if I initial it, that I've modified the agreement and I'm not going to be held to that. That is an attempt to modify an agreement. Now, modifications for the most part have to be in, in um, exchange for additional consideration in order to be enforced. And they have to be agreed to by both parties. So if you just cross it out and the other party doesn't accept that modification, you haven't effectively changed that agreement at all. So what I would definitely recommend in negotiating contracts, or let's say you go into um, a property management com company's office and you see a term, you don't agree to the term. Most of the times you are not, 
dealing with people who have the ability or the authority to change that agreement. So I would make sure that if the agent is indicating to you that, oh, we don't have to worry about that, that's a standard term, or you can just mark that out, I would make sure that you are dealing with someone who has the authority to change or to modify the terms of that agreement. So that's, I think, um, the first thing that you should do. Two, if that person does have the authority, then I would make sure that both parties agree and sign. So if you're crossing out a um, provision in an agreement, then not only just crossing it out, but crossing it out and both parties initialing or signing beside that modification. So that is signaling that all parties are agreeing to. Now, if you haven't signed it yet, then that's um, you know prior to the the this formation of the contract, then that's a lot better than having or trying to modify it later on. But um, I would make sure that all parties are indicating their assent. So just mainly changing it is not going to be effective. What well, what about about, yeah, just staying with that, just staying with that example. Uh, what about the situation where? You, uh, uh, you want the apartment, uh, but you see that there is some deficiency or defect in the, uh, uh, in the uh, uh, unit that uh, you want and the uh, uh, lending agent or the rental agent uh, agrees to, uh, verbally agrees to uh, paint the uh, living room or to paint the uh, bathroom or to have a uh, exterminator uh, to uh, come in and spray uh, the place. Uh, but there is no indication on the written contract of that agreement. Is that uh, verbal agreement uh, enforceable? So the short answer to that is yes. So you can have additional agreements. Not all agreements have to be in writing. However, if the agreement itself, so if the initial rental agreement indicates that it has to be in writing in order to be modified, then your failure for um, to not have it in writing, your failure to not have it signed off on um, is going to be an issue. So you wanna make sure that if within the agreement, it has a provision that says that you cannot modify the agreement. You wanna make sure that um, you have that modification, unless it's in writing, you wanna make sure that you have that, um, that agreement in writing. But as we talked about before, not all agreements have to be in writing to be enforced. With that being said, the issue, and again, I tell my students, it's never a problem until it's a problem. The issue that results, if you don't have it in writing, is that, you know, the other party can always say, I didn't say that I would do that. And so really having something in writing is the only way to fully protect yourself in the event that, um, that there is a separate or outside agreement in order to make sure that that outside agreement is going to be enforced. So um, now with the the rental property scenario, you might have time to, you know, read over the contract. Oftentimes you're given a contract and you don't have time to read it. So like if you go to the doctor's office or the hospital 
and they give you the form and they will try to very quickly say, oh, this just allows us to do X, Y, and Z. But you're looking at this document and it has all of this verbiage and you're really expected to sign it right then, even though it might take you a, a full hour to read or it more. and try to understand or, or more. <laughs> uh, and even if you do read it, you may not understand it all. What do you suggest in those situations where you have to sign something before you really do have an adequate opportunity to understand what you're signing? You know, I think, I think all of us have, have encountered that type of, a, of an experience where we're presented with a document and we're told we have to sign immediately. Uh, what I would suggest is for, for people to request any documents, so if you're going to a rental agency to make sure um, beforehand you ask for a copy of their rental agreement. But in, you know, to the extent possible, in those types of situations, it's always good to have an opportunity to read those in advance, again, just so that you know what you're consenting to or agreeing to. In the event that you're not provided with what you feel is a sufficient amount of time, um, you know, we've all seen those agreements and we know how long those agreements are. Um, and you know, I will admit that they're, they're even after teaching contracts law for as long as I've been teaching it, there are a number of, of times when I look at an agreement and I may not read every single line. Um, you know, but what I suggest to my students and caution them against is, um, not understanding the big terms, like the really important terms and taking an opportunity to ask questions, um, ask them where you can find the, their answer. Oftentimes the people that you're talking with or that are there to get you to sign the agreement, they don't know what's in it themselves. So have them point out to you, um, ask for additional time, ask if, if there is something that you um, can take home before you sign. So just make sure you have enough time to the extent that um, that you can. If it's a you know a really important document, or if you're obligating yourself for an extended period of time. Now, what I also want to talk about when we're talking about these types of, of documents, one of the myths that I've um, encountered in my practice, and then um, again also when I've been teaching contracts in law school, is that somewhere out there, there is an assumption or this myth that if I sign any contract, I have three days where I can terminate that contract, right? So I want to tell your listeners that that is not true. Now, while there are some exceptions, so there are some statutes that provide that you have to have a period of time to be able to rescind the contract. A really good example of that is if you are refinancing your house. Um, if you enter into an agreement for a, a new loan to refinance your house, you have three days after signing that agreement to look over all the terms. And again, that's one of those situations where you're signing a number of documents really, really quickly. Right. But you have a three day period to after that transaction, look over all the documents and all the materials that you've just signed. It's, you know, what it seems like in just a couple of seconds. Um, and in the event that you want to rescind that transaction, you have three days to do so. But absent either a statute or um, it providing for an opportunity to rescind within the contract, once you sign a document, you are bound. 
So once you sign the document or once you agree or say, I, you know, I do, I accept your terms, you are binding yourself to that agreement. So you really do want to make sure that before you sign on the dotted line or before you agree to any type of, of a deal, a transaction, that you understand exactly what you're entering into because there may not be an ability to be able to, to then get out of that agreement. Well, can, can you discuss uh, just, you know, just briefly, just how, how, how those principles uh, work uh, with respect to the marriage contract? Because people think that marriage is about love and in the law it's about uh, a contract. And uh, so they enter into these things unknowing uh, or not really understanding the scope of the contractual uh, obligation uh, that they have. So can you kind of talk about how those principles apply in that context? Absolutely. So as you indicated, a marriage is, is and, and we all know how that starts. It starts with love and everyone is, is Alex. <laughs> I don't know how, but I knew you were going to ask this question. Um, but yeah, everyone thinks that the relationship um, between the parties, that is the, that's who's in the marriage. But I tell people a marriage is a contract between you and the other party and the state. Yeah. So the relationship, the marriage that you have entered into is subject to the, um, the terms and conditions by the state. So in order to be married, you have to adhere to the, um, the regulations as prescribed by each state. And in order to get out of the marriage, you have to adhere to certain regulations. So that within itself is a contract that consists of not just you and the other party, but the state that um, in it will accompany all of the, or um, it is accompanied by all of the obligations and the requirements as re um, indicated by that state. All right, well, you are listening to the Legal Eagle Review here on WNCU 90.7 FM. And we've been talking with Professor Kia Vernon, who teaches contracts at North Carolina Central University School of Law. We're gonna take a quick break, but we hope you stay with us. We will be right back. Since 2010, the North Carolina Central University School of Law has been at the forefront of virtual legal education with the launch of its Virtual Justice Project. The Virtual Justice Project is an innovation in legal education and technology. NCCU School of Law pioneered this approach to address the underrepresentation of African-American lawyers and a lack of access to justice for low-income and marginalized communities. Virtual pre-law courses prepare students, wherever they are, for the rigor of law school. The Know Your Rights series offers legal information sessions that empower participants to understand the law and to promote self-advocacy. Both the pre-law courses and the legal information sessions are made possible through telepresence and high-definition video conferencing. Course listings and contact information, along with more detail about the Virtual Justice Project, are on the NCCU Law website at law.nccu.edu.
And we're back. Thank you again for tuning in to the Legal Eagle Review here on WNCU 90.7 FM. I'm April Dawson and my co-host Irving Joyner and I have been talking with Professor Kia Vernon, who teaches contracts at the law school. And right before the break, Professor Vernon, you were talking about the legality of marriages and how marriages, it's not just an agreement between the two individuals involved, but also with the state. Uh, Can you talk a little bit about how financial obligations arise in a marriage with this legal contract? Well, there there are, as we discussed in in terms of what that relationship consists of, it's not just what the parties agree to. There can be a lot of financial um, considerations and impact um, that need to be considered and should be considered when entering into any type of an agreement and a marriage agreement um, is, is one of those significant agreements that you'd want to make sure that you consider as well what those financial implications are. So, you know, what I tell people who are entering into this type of of a relationship is that it's really best to kind of talk about what your feelings are now and what your position is now. Um, That's probably the best time to enter into any type of an agreement before you get married, um, which spells out in the event that you either were to divorce or have kids or um, anything. But um, in the event that there are any issues, you have a way that those issues will be resolved. And so when you think about just in terms of the family law arena, uh, the contractual issues we look at, um, any type of spousal support, look at child support, you look at you know any other types of uh, financial considerations, what happens with the house if the parties uh, in the marital relationship. So those types of things, again, the state's involved and the state allows you the opportunity to decide for yourself. So you can enter into a contractual agreement saying like what, you know, what will happen in the event we decide to no longer be together. But if you don't avail yourself of these opportunities that the state provides, then the state gets to make this decision for you as a party to this agreement. So we really like to encourage people um, to enter into prior to getting into a marital relationship agreements, which would designate how you would decide these big financial issues. Um, And also in the event that you don't avail yourself of that opportunity before, certainly it's something that you can do after and entering into a separation agreement. But I will say it's much harder to get the parties to agree once the emotion and you know the, the feelings of it not going as you initially planned it are involved. So make sure that you um, take advantage of that opportunity before you enter into the marital relationship. Another type of contract that uh, people enter into and not really understanding all of the uh, possible uh, repercussions and consequences is the uh, employment. Uh, contract. And, uh, and that is a little different than some of the other contracts that, uh, that we've talked about. So can you kind of give us a, a quick little primer on the uh, employment uh, contracts and the obligations that uh, the parties uh, enter into with uh, the employment decision? Absolutely. First thing that I want to do is just talk about the 
concept of an employment contract. Most people think that just by working for someone that there is a, a contract. Um, we have in North Carolina what's known as at-will employment. And what that means is that a party can, um, can be hired as well as be fired or can, um, can walk away from that, that employment relationship at any time without any consequence. So um, the at-will employment structure, unless you have entered into a specific contract for a specific term, your employment is most likely at-will. And so what that means is that it's subject to you know, certain terms, but there is no requirement for um, you to be given you know, notice or um, you to, to be given anything at all if they were to terminate you. And likewise, you don't have to give another party notice, although it's, it's, it's typical to give a two weeks um, notice, but it's not required. So a lot of people talk about employment contracts and, and they think that what that means is they have a contract and they can't be fired. But in most instances, absent a contract for a specific term or for a specific period of time, that is a contract that is at the will or an agreement that's at the will of either party. And so there, there isn't a, um, an obligation that they have to employ you other than um, for however long that they need you. So um, I do want to make sure that people understand that not all employment contracts are, in fact, contracts at all. Uh, they are at will and at the will of either party. Now, if you do enter into an employment agreement, um, with that employment agreement, there are certain terms and obligations that, um, that you are consenting to about that contractual relationship. So again, uh, making sure that you read those documents, but those documents indicate the amount of time um, and the, the, how different issues are gonna be resolved and what you are going to be receiving in exchange for what you're going to be paid. Now, related to that, we have a number of people who are freelancers. So they're small business owners and they are, you know, providing services um, for hire. And so they're entering into this contractual relationship. And so they may feel like employees, but they may just be, you know, independent contractors, but there's still this contractual relationship. What advice could you give to small business owners or freelancers in terms of making sure that they protect themselves as they are entering into these business, um, very similar to like employment relationships? I, that's a really good question, and, and, and I hate to sound um, redundant, but I do want to make sure that people understand um, exactly what they are assigning. And a lot of people think, well, I, I, you know, I don't understand this, but I, I feel like I have to sign. I don't know where I can go for help. So there are a number of different organizations and entities or, or ways to get help if you feel um, that you're, if you want to make sure that your interests are protecting. And it's, it's better to go ahead and do that prior to get um, getting into a contractual agreement with someone and then um, having to expend 
substantial amount of money trying to either get out of it or um, trying to, to help you to navigate through it. So I definitely would recommend you know, making sure that you're aware of the terms and those types of, of contracts. There generally is an ability to be able to, to negotiate those terms. So make sure that your interests are protected. What I always recommend, the first thing that I look for in any type of, of agreement when I'm reviewing it on behalf of uh, an individual or an entity is to make sure that there's an escape clause, right? So that's just a way to get out of that agreement and on what terms you can get out of that agreement. So what we're seeing now is a lot of times when, when we're entering into agreements, we're entering into agreements really with no way of getting out of them. So we're obligating um, ourselves and a lot of times the entities that we're entering into these contracts with have the ability to foresee lots of issues that we don't. So in some instance, it's a little one-sided. So we wanna make sure that we have um, considered the impact of the work that we are doing and um, a way to get out of the contract if either party is not um, happy or if it's, it's not a profitable arrangement, um, but really wanna look at what your obligations are and then um, what options you have under the contract if you're um, unsatisfied or if you're not happy. Can you give us an example of, of escape clauses? What might give rise to an ability to exit the contract? So what you're looking for is something that would allow you to for actually cause um, or for a, a specific event to get out of the contract. So what you're looking for if you're in any type of a um, a work relationship, if you're um, within, let's say, uh, um, unhappy, or if a certain event arises, you have 30 days, or you, could, you only have to provide a 30-day notice in order to get out of the contract. So what you're wanting to do, just it depends a lot on what the contract is for and what the situation is, but you always want to look for if you're unhappy with this relationship. Again, everything looks really good on the out, uh, onset of any type of relationship and you're getting along, but there's never a problem until there's a problem. And when there's a problem that arises, you want to be able to not be obligated or not continue to be obligated to um, provide services. So to the extent possible, including a provision that allows for you to, with some reasonable notice, um, 30 days, 60 days, 90 days to get out of the uh, transaction or to um, terminate the contract. Now, what remedies uh, might a person have in the event that there is a breach or an unlawful termination of the uh, contract that uh, that they've uh, entered into with someone. So there are there are different remedies. The uh, most common remedy that people pursue is damages for breach of contract, and so. Um, what I tell my students is it's really important to understand that in order to to recover for breach of contract, you're going to have to, for the most part, sue. So what happens is when you enter into a contract, both parties enter the contract. If one party doesn't do what they obligate themselves to do, then the um, then that results in a breach. But the other party isn't just going to hand over money or hand over damages. So in order to preserve or in order to make sure that, that that party does what they say that they are going to do, what he or she says that they, um, that he or she will do, you really have, are going to have to find some way to enforce that. Most oftentimes that's 
to take them to court. So if it's um, for a, a small amount, you can take them to small um, claims court, but for larger amounts, you generally are going to need some kind of assistance for that. What I've seen lately, and, and this is something that I, I tell my students, do not um, discount some of the other services that are available in the event you have a problem. So when I say that, um, lots of times there are a lot of, of different news companies or um, news channels that offer um, like investigation um, reporting. On your side. Well, I wasn't going to say that, <laughs> but yes, that's a perfect <laughs> example where people have, have had um, issues and unfortunately the people have not had an ability to be able to sue either because the amount is minimal or they just don't have the money. So there are a lot of different nonprofit organizations. There are a, a lot of different um, news channels and other agencies that are really able to provide some relief, not just um, to sue, but to put that information out in the public so that um, the other party then is encouraged, I'll say, um, to then to do what they agreed to do. So we've seen lots of instances lately where we're looking at non-traditional ways to enforce an agreement. So I do want to make sure people understand that if someone doesn't fulfill their end of the bargain, you're not just stuck. Right, reach out to um, other people in the community. There are also a lot of agencies that um, assist and nonprofits that assist with parties who have some type of dispute, but reach out to see if you can get some assistance. And that raises this question about alternative dispute resolution. So instead of filing a lawsuit and having to get a lawyer, are there organizations available that can help parties, because I would suspect that oftentimes when you've got these contractual disputes that sometimes it's not the situation where someone just, you know, willingly breaches, but there might be a, a different view of what a term means or what was really agreed upon. Um, are there some alternative dispute resolutions like mediation that parties can participate in? That's a great question. So there, there are a lot of, and, and now what we've seen is a proliferation of agreements. And so you asked that question, but I do want to make sure um, I tell the viewers that oftentimes when you sign agreements, which you're now agreeing to, is actually not being able to go into court. And so there are a number of different um, contracts that people are signing that have arbitration clauses. And so I do want people to um, understand what an arbitration clause is within an agreement. And what it generally means is that you can't actually sue someone in court, that that dispute then has to be decided by um, an arbitrator. So um, that is it's something that we've seen and that we've seen a lot of that, that as long as it is fair and, and equitable that courts have been willing to um, allow is that for parties to agree to go to arbitration in the event of any um, dispute. So it, it, it seems as if, and I think the, the purpose of those types of agreements is so that it's an easier or faster and a much less expensive process. But I do want people to be aware when they are entering into agreements of um, arbitration that they may actually, actually be limiting their ability to be able to recover. But um, in the event that the agreement does not contain an arbitration ag uh, agreement, or arbitration provision, there are a number of different avenues, just like um, mediation, 
that will allow you to resolve that dispute where both parties come to the table and come together and work on a, a mutually beneficial resolution to that. So we've seen that not only in uh, independent contracts between individuals, but also we've seen it in the family law arena as well. So it, it doesn't necessarily have to mean a, a lawsuit or that there has to be a, any type of litigation, but there may be a way to resolve the, the issue and to get assistance without actually going to court to do so. But isn't it uh, also true though that in uh, with many industries like uh, banking and uh, credit cards and uh, cell phones and uh, computers uh, that the uh, arbitration clauses really ties a person into arbitration by a specific class of approved uh, individuals or arbitrators that's been designated by the uh, by the industry. Therefore, you your your chances of getting a fair deal uh, is uh, suspect. <laughs> well, I'll admit that that is um, a danger, and that's one of the things that we are concerned about in our profession about making sure that individuals aren't in that that type of danger but to make sure that they have a, a way and a meaningful way in order to resolve their disputes and to get some type of recovery. There are some, and you know, typically this is at the end of you know, when there is a problem, but there are some, um, some contract principles that you can use to say that I should be able to avoid enforcement of a certain agreement. Um, we, we don't want people to think that they can just enter into an agreement and they're going to be able to get out of it. But there are some agreements and what we often see when you have these types of a proliferation of um, these types of, of arbitration agreements, we look at maybe it being unconscionable so that the term is unconscionable and then the way they enter into the agreement is unconscionable that would allow them to avoid that specific term. And what does that explain to our listeners, what that means, what that would look like? So that's generally when we have a provision that's just so unfair. So we, we speak about unconscionability as it being shocking to the court, that the provision doesn't allow for a person to be able to have their dispute um, be heard, and that the way that they entered into the contract is essentially they didn't have a meaningful way of entering into the contract. So there are some remedies that the law provides for uh, contracts in which the other party doesn't either give the party an ability to be able to have um, a, a choice in entering into the agreement, they have to accept it. So we do want to, in the event people have an issue, we do want them seeking help. So you know, reach out to someone and um, you know, talk to someone. There are a lot of, of, of clinics and legal clinics and um, free lawyers on call. Um, so a lot of different things within the community that people are doing to make sure that if someone has an issue, they are able to get some help. So I just don't want people to think that you're stuck if you get into an, any type of an agreement um, and that there's no way out of it, that you don't have help. Well, all right. Well, wonderful advice. And so just to kind of sum up, uh, read everything before you sign. Mm -hmm. If you don't have time, or you don't think you'll have time, see if you can get a copy ahead of time. And uh, because we really do need to do a better job of making sure what we are obligating ourselves to. 
We would like to thank Professor Kia Vernon, who teaches contracts at North Carolina Central University School of Law and who is a proud Double Eagle. And we are so proud that she is one of our colleagues. Uh, want to thank you for being a guest on the show. I want to thank you so much for having me here. It's been a pleasure and, and I'm excited about this opportunity. And we'd also like to thank you, our listening audience, for spending your Sunday evening with us. If you have any questions or comments, please send us an email. You can reach us at LegalEagleReview at nccu.edu. And as you know, you can also find this show on iTunes in podcast form. Don't forget to follow us on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. Until next week, stay informed and engaged.